children, as your holy and dearly loved children. We praise you that we are no longer separated from you, but we are brought near through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Because of your son, we too are sons and daughters of God. May we know your deep and everlasting love for us as we seek to live that truth that we are yours. Amen. 
we have a chance now to give back to God from all that he has poured out upon us as we give back through our tithes and offerings. You may be seated as we continue in worship together. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me continue in worship by praying together, and it's been our practice for a long time. But, uh, if you'd like to come and use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers, come and join me.
Father, we thank you for all of your gifts, particularly for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that through your Holy Spirit, we will experience Christ in new ways, deeper ways. We will open our hearts to Christ more and more, not only when we are here in worship, but every moment of every day. We come today asking for your grace upon us, upon uh, others who are finding life to be especially difficult right now. We pray for all who are grieving and ask for your comforting presence. We pray for all who are struggling with issues of health and well-being, pain, struggle. We ask that you would bring your healing grace to bear on each one. I think especially of Mildred Berry and Doris Asepian, Blanche Weaver, Tammy Dunmire, Luke Heisinger, Wade Marsh, Sheldon Emerson, Bob Jobert, Laurel Buecher, Bill Getty, Warren and Ella Woolsey, Phil Muker, Mike Raybuck and Bev Rett, Micah Christensen and Linda Roth, Dick Gould, Emily Cricklar, and others who may be on our minds today. We thank you for your healing presence in them. Father, we pray for our homes, for our work, for our relationships. And where there are fractures and where life is not what we wish it would be, we pray for your healing grace, your restoring grace in every circumstance. We pray for this world in which we live. We think, Father, of refugees around the world who are struggling to survive. We ask for grace and help. We pray for those who who are trying to recover and deal with recent disasters and terrorist attacks. Bring healing to them, help to them. We pray, Father, for racial healing in our nation particularly, but in the nations of the world. Give us sensitive hearts to the needs of of people who, who feel that life and society is against them. And we pray, Father, that rather than fighting, we will be united in love for you and for each other. Father, we pray for your church around the world. We think of believers in, who live in Europe facing a, a very post-Christian environment, sharing the love of Christ with people there, particularly with refugees, many from the Middle East. We pray for this uh, for new Wesleyan churches like Remedy Church in the Czech Republic, that, uh, that they and others will come together to help meet the physical, social, spiritual needs of refugees and others. We think of our brothers and sisters in West Africa today who live with the pressure of, uh, of an imposing culture of other religions, the calls to prayer, the, the, the way of life, the, the agitation Lord, we can't really fathom what it's like to to exist in that environment. We pray for your grace and your mercy and your strength upon them. Father, we pray for our own church and our ministries. And today we pray especially for our Wednesday evening kids clubs. We thank you for the commitment this church has had from its inception to nurture our children. And this is one way to do that. And we pray that you will bless the clubs, bless everyone involved 
We need more people to help. And we pray that you will put on our hearts uh, a a desire and and a burden and a willingness to be a part of nurturing the faith of the little ones that you said, let them come to me. And we pray for the churches around us and think today of the Bolivar United Methodist Church and Pastor Hudlin. Pour out your spirit upon her and this congregation of believers that they, they will be lights and, and hope in the midst of whatever circumstances that are a part of their community and beyond. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. Be glorified in answering in the way that you know is best. Give us compassion for this world. Give us your heart. And we pray, Father, all of this to the name and the grace and the mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our scripture reading comes from Galatians chapter 3, 23 to chapter 4, verse 7. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God set his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. This is the word of the Lord. Some of you may be aware that uh, this week is the Faith and Justice Symposium at the college. And we are uh, excited to, uh, to help partner with that, to help uh, engage with that. And hopefully many of you will be involved. Brian Webb, uh, who uh, is in charge of this program, uh, is here. He's going to share just a little bit about uh, what's happening with this event and how you might be involved. Good morning. As Pastor West mentioned, this coming week is the 6th Annual Faith and Justice Symposium at Houghton College. And every year, the Faith and Justice Symposium selects uh, a topic connected to justice and explores how that relates to society, but more importantly, how it relates to our Christian faith as well. 
I was struck singing this song a few minutes ago, I'm no longer a slave to fear, but I am a child of God. And I think it really expresses well sort of the goals and our hope what the symposium accomplishes. Because a lot of these issues of justice can be really complicated and can lead to fear-based responses. And we want to know how we as children of God can respond in faith to them. So this year's topic is loving our neighbors, uh, immigrants and refugees. And we're going to look at this from a lot of different angles. We have a lot of exciting speakers coming and activities as well. It starts on Wednesday with Jenny Yang, Vice President uh, for World Relief, great organization that does a lot of outreach uh, and ministry among uh, refugees around the world. Uh, on Thursday evening, we're going to have a music and art event that's going to involve a lot of Houghton students, both from here on the campus, but also from the Houghton Buffalo campus as well, coming down to share sort of their musical talents from around the world, as well as stories, uh, specifically hearing from students who have been uh, refugees themselves and hearing their stories. Uh, there's a participatory art program, as well as an art auction and other events as well. And then Friday, we have another speaker in chapel uh, who is from Wheaton College, an Old Testament professor named Danny Carroll. And then we have workshops on Friday afternoon, including one uh, by some of you may know David Drury with the Wesleyan Church. He'll be coming and talking about what the Wesleyan Church is doing with immigration and refugee issues. And then we'll be closing out with a film Friday night uh, as well. All of these events are open to the public and free of charge. And if you want to find more details on the schedule, just go to the Houghton website and type in Faith and Justice in the search bar, and you'll find more information there. Thanks. Good morning. I'm Emily Hoffman. I'm the children's director here at Houghton Wesleyan. And this Wednesday night, we start our Wednesday night program, hopefully. Um, We're really excited. We have lots of fun things to do for the kids and fun activities. But we do not have the volunteers we need to run the program. Um, It's an hour on Wednesday night, 6.15 to 7.15. There's kids ages 2 up to 6th grade. We need help in all our classes. It's no prep. You just come, play with the kids, hang out and then go home exhausted. (laughs) He'll put you to sleep at night, or you'll be too wired, you can't go to sleep. One of the two. But we need need a lot of help. And so we have sign-ups in the Christian Education Building over here. On the first floor, there's sign-ups. If you sign up for, even if it's just one hour for the semester, that would help us a lot. So if you can help, we would love to have you. Bulletin, an insert, it's blue insert, and it gives a little more details about the needs that we have. Uh, we're really looking for not necessarily leaders, though if you like doing games, I think that's one of the things they're looking for, uh, maybe a person or a couple people who will run games each week. But we're really just looking for people who will spend time with the children, hang out with them, play with them, uh, be a, uh, a friend to them, resource to them. And um, it's a great way to nurture our own faith. And we are committed in this church to, to nurturing the faith of our children. This is one way we do that. And it's an opportunity for you to be involved. Whether you are a year-round resident or you're a student, we would love to have you involved. If you want to take, if you're not sure about signing up or getting to the foyer, if you just want to write on your bulletin, uh, Wednesday evening children's ministry, put your name and contact information and just hand it to one of us as you leave. You can give it to me after the service and we'll make sure that you get contacted right away about being involved. It's an hour Wednesday nights and as you can see the schedule is really a couple times a month. Because uh, we're starting something new this month, this year, of having intergenerational events every month uh, that will involve all people, not just the children. So you see a couple of uh, Wednesday nights a month. We'd love to have you involved. Also, we're making final preparations for a nursery schedule. If you're interested in being part of that, working in nursery, there are some sign-up sheets on the back table. And uh, just grab one of those. Again, you can hand it to, to me, to Emily, to any of the pastors or 
someone will make sure that, that you get contacted about that. The schedule will be made tomorrow. Uh, also, I'm hosting a membership class a week in about a, 10 days or so, uh, 26th, 27th, one of those days. If you're interested in joining this church, maybe knowing more about it, just let me know. You can send me an email and we'll get you on the list. And uh, we hope to, uh, that if you just are thinking, I'm not sure exactly what it means to be a member, then the class, the class that we have will help you with that. And um, one other thing, uh, we started a couple weeks ago a new class, new gathering at the 11 o'clock hour right after the service in the basement right below us. So if you take any of the steps that go down, you'll get there. There's a large room downstairs. In fact, they're probably hearing everything that we're going on here right now. But uh, Don and Jeannie Little are hosting a class there, uh, gathering. Uh, they're talking a lot about prayer and forms of prayer. And it's, it's specifically designed, hopefully, to be a kind of gathering that would connect college students and community people. And we'd love to have you be a part of it. So if you're interested, just go right downstairs afterwards. I'm pretty sure there is coffee down there. If not, they will tell you where to go to get some coffee in the back room. But I know they have some of that available. So uh, we'd love to have you be a part of that gathering as well. Let's take a minute, share a word of greeting with others who are here. Maybe introduce yourself to someone that you don't know. In our honest moments, we all struggle with identity. Who am I? Am I important? Am I significant? What's the purpose of my life? What's my identity? We get all kinds of messages from our culture, our society, even the church, about what really our identity is focused in. You've heard it. Maybe you've said it. Often our identity, I mean, in our culture, there's so much about um, gender identity. There's so much identity about our sexuality. There is identity about what we possess, how much or how little we have. There is racial identity. There is identity, nationalistic identity. There is the identity of, of uh, fame or lack of. There's the identity of what we do, what we accomplish. All of these things are pressing in on us. All, these, all the messages that come to us from the various forms of media as well as just people we're around are continually bombarding us with this is what your identity is about. This is how you know who you are. It is a struggle for us because we are such fragile beings. 
All it takes is a word from someone and we begin to question our identity. All it takes is a, is a loss and we begin to question our identity. All it takes is someone's profound argument and we start questioning our identity because we are fragile people and we are continually struggling with the insecurity of who we are. And I find that most of the time where we tend to default to is what am I doing? What am I accomplishing? What have I gained? What have I got? And almost always, all of these identities, all these ways of identifying us as who we are, have to do with us. And this is what's going on in the church in Galatia. These Christians, Paul says in this chapter we've read, at least we read part of it, these Christians are wrestling with their identity because they have come to Christ, they, they have known Christ, they've made a commitment to Christ, but now they are being convinced that their identity is not in Christ, it is in something else. And they've had people who have come from Jerusalem, Jewish people who are part of the Jerusalem church, who have a skewed view of what it means to be in Christ, and have come to them and said, you're not really in Christ because you don't follow the Jewish law. And you cannot be a Christian until you first are a Jew. And you cannot be a full Christian. You cannot know the fullness of life with Christ unless you embrace all of the Jewish law. All the rules, all the forms, all of this. You have to embrace it or you cannot be what you were created to be. And Paul writes in this letter and specifically in chapter 3 and says to them, What is wrong with you people? You're foolish. What's going through your minds? He's, he's, one of the translations says, who's bewitched you? Who's tricked you? Who has been so persuasive that they have actually created the atmosphere in which you now think your identity is back of what you do, like it, you used to think, instead of in Christ? It is not about the law. It's about Christ. It's not about following rules and forms. It's about Christ. Every one of us wrestles with this. It's not about what you do. It's about what Christ has done for you. Now, he does tell us that there are some good things uh, about the law. There are some, I mean, it's not as if God didn't mean to give the law because it was a, it was a bad thing. He gave the law for a purpose at a time. And Paul says that there are really two things that the law, two benefits of the law. One of them is that it reveals the sins that we're committing. In, in verse 19, he says, why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. That's why the law was given. It's not as though before the law was given, people didn't sin. And they only sinned because of the law. What he means is, now we know we're sinning. Before, we were sinning and didn't realize it. Now we do. So you think of it this way. So you see someone running across a field, headed to a, a drop-off, a canyon. And they don't realize the canyon is there. And they can't really see it from where they are. And, but they're running full force toward it. And, you, and all of a sudden, you, and you realize the, the way to stop them is to start, as they're moving across, to start putting up signs Danger, 
danger, danger. Stop. Now they they are in danger and peril the whole way. It's just that now they realize they're in danger. Or think of it this way: if someone if someone said, um, if if this, if we had no traffic laws. And everyone was having accidents and hurting each other and damaging cars because they were driving any way they wanted to drive. Can you imagine having absolutely no traffic laws and coming to where two roads intersect with each other? And everyone just says, well, hey, I'm doing what I want to do. Can you imagine the kinds of consequences of that? And so what happens? States begin to make traffic laws. And now, we're so ingrained into these laws that we get them even without the having to make new laws. We know how to drive. What do you, you have to read the manual. You have to learn the laws. You have to take the test so that you can be a good driver. The laws didn't make us now. All of a sudden, now we, we, are, we realize that we are now driving good and driving well. But it's, it's the fact that before, we were driving crazily and we were suffering for it. Now we have ways to keep us from doing that. And Paul says that's one of the purposes of the law. And the second purpose is that it is protection for us. It's a guardian for us. He writes in verse 23, Before the way of Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian. And he says the law guards us. The law protects us. It's what we do with little children. If if you've been around little children or you think back to when you were a child, one of the frustrating things for you was all the rules that your parents made. And I've got to be honest with you, as a parent, it's not fun making rules. It may seem like it when you're a child that your parents are having fun making rules for you. But it's to protect you. And so they make rules about when you go to bed. And they make rules about needing to go to school. And they make rules about what you can eat. And they make rules about what you can touch and do and shouldn't do. And, you know, we make these rules and and we sometimes get very emphatic about the rules. We yell at our children if they're about to touch a hot stove. It's not because it's just the rule, but it's because we don't want them to be hurt. We discipline our children when when they are tempted to run out into the middle of a busy road. It's not because we've made this rule and they better not break it. It's because we don't want them to be hit by a car. We have these rules to protect them. And Paul says that's what the law does for us. It tells us, do this, do that. Don't do this, don't do that. Because it's in your best interest. And so God gives the Israelites this law so that they will know what is good for them and what's not good for them. And the more they follow the laws, the better life is. And he also talks about it being a guardian. And in a way, it's not just protection, but it is, it is a, a help. And he talks about how you have this image... Of an affluent homes, you had a child that that had a slave that kept stuck with his child all of, all the day, and the guardian. One of the ways of translating that the word is pedagogue, which you know we get the pedagogy, which we mean you know to teach to learn. But the the guardian, the pedagogue, is not the teacher. The pedagogue is a slave who makes sure that the student gets to the teacher. The pedagogue is the slave who makes sure that the student does their homework. The pedagogue is the slave that makes sure that they go to bed when they're supposed to so that they will be ready to learn the next day. The pedagogue is, is this person, this slave, whose job is to make sure the child has every possibility to learn what they need to learn. 
And Paul says that's what the law does for us. That's the benefit. But it only goes so far. He keeps talking in this passage that the law did this for us until. The law did that for us until. Because the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives that supersedes the law, that Jesus says comes to fulfill the law, is that it moves us from the rules that are necessary for immature spirituality to the Holy Spirit that is necessary for mature spirituality. I think I've always had in my mind that the holiest people, the most spiritual people, are the ones who follow the rules best. The, the most spiritual people, the holy people, are the ones who follow all the rules better than anybody else. Paul is saying the most spiritually mature people are the ones who can live without the rules at all. The spiritually mature people are the ones who rely not on the laws, but on the Holy Spirit. They are filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit guides them. The Holy Spirit changes them. The Holy Spirit motivates them. And so instead of doing what we do because it's a law we follow, we do what we do because the Holy Spirit has transformed us and has made us people who want to do what God is prompting us to do. And we move from immaturity to maturity. And hopefully, as we move along in our journey with Christ, the goal is to not hang on to the laws more. It's to let them go and live our lives under the control of the Holy Spirit instead of the law. That's freedom. We're teaching along, we're teaching our families, teaching our granddaughter Emma to walk. She's almost 16 months. And what she likes to do now is she used to hold our hand, and now she just holds one finger. And often with one hand, but she's a little bit fearful, and so she, but she walks holding our fingers like that. Now, that's exactly what we ought to do. We need her. She needs us to walk, help her walk like that. But it would be weird if she went to high school and she's still holding our finger and we're walking with her through the halls. Right? That's when they start pulling out, bringing in the, uh, the psychiatrist to evaluate our family because something's really wrong, going wrong here in this place. That, the goal is not that she would always hang on to our hand. The goal is that she would be free to walk on her own. The goal is not that we, that we keep the law, that her parents keep the laws surrounding her. You can do this, you can do that, you can't do this, you can't do that. The goal is to, is to nurture her and teach her in such a way that as she gets older, she doesn't need all of those rules. She knows the freedom of being a mature adult. Some of you haven't experienced this yet, but one of the great... Um, I don't know what the right word is. Maybe one of the great surprises in life is at when you go home for Christmas break of your first year of college. Because before you came to college, you lived under your parents' rules. Here's where I'm going. Here's when I'll be home. You know, I'll call if, I have, if I'm not going to be there for supper. On and on, right? And now you've just spent three months living your own life making your own decisions, 
deciding what you're going to do, when, what you're going to eat, when you're going to eat, if you're going to eat. You're going to, you made decisions about how you spend your evenings, who you're with, what you do. You basically have autonomy. And it is a huge shock to your system and, quite frankly, to your parents when you come home from Christmas break and now you have to go back to living under their rules again. And so here, no one asks you when you're going to be back, when you're going to be home. And when you get home, I, I, I can almost guarantee you the first time you say, I'm going to go out with my friends, the question is, so when are you going to be home? And you're thinking, I don't have to do that anymore. And Paul is saying, there's a place for living under the rules. But that's not the end goal. The end goal is to be a mature adult who is set free to live under the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, it changes our relationships. It changes how we relate to other people. He says at the end of chapter 3 that in baptism... We're clothed in baptism. And when that happens, we no longer view people as who's a male or female, who's a Jew or a Gentile, who's a slave or a free person, because we're all one in Christ. I suspect he brings that up here and connects it with baptism because it kind of comes out of the blue because this was probably part of the baptism ritual of the early church. A person went into the waters of baptism and made a declaration in Christ In my life, how I view people, it's no longer by these classifications. There's no longer these judgments of divisions. We're all one in Christ. And you put on the robes of baptism. And in that that moment of baptism, we are declaring, I want to see people the way Jesus does. And that means we no longer talk about people who are more valuable than others. Or less valuable than others. We're all equal in Christ. It is interesting that Paul has been talking about Jews and Gentiles throughout this whole letter, and he will continue to talk about them in the rest of the letter. And yet, when he comes to this place, he doesn't just talk about Jews and Gentiles. He talks about males and females, and he talks about slaves and free people. And the reason for that is because he's not just talking about the classification of race. And nationality. He's talking about all the ways in which we classify and judge people as being worthy or unworthy. And if Paul is saying throughout this letter that Jews and Gentiles are equal in Christ, that they, can, they have the, all the same promises of Christ, they have the same experience with Christ, they have the same, uh, they have the same end game of goal with Christ, then so do men and women. And so do slaves and free people. And as the church, we need to embrace that. I think in America, we have a tendency to, even subconsciously, look down on people from other nations who may not be as affluent as we are. I think in this nation, we all know that we, have, we are a nation that is so often divided by race and culture and any way, quite frankly, that we can think of politically. And in the church, instead of thinking of people as being less significant or more significant, we think of them just as 
valuable and significant to Jesus. And men and women, there is a tendency in the church to classify men and women as well. There are things that men can do and women can't. In the church, we are all one in Christ. Period. And it's not just how we view other people. It's how what we say and do causes people to think about what they cause people to, how they think about themselves. When we start talking about they're significant, they're not, that group is significant, that group's less significant, that gets under our skin, it gets into our psyche, and we start living as if though that's true. And we, are, and we, and we forfeit the freedom that's ours in Christ because we've been told we're less significant. We've been told we're less valuable, we're less important. And that is not of the kingdom. The goal of the kingdom eventually is to take us back to God's original intent for creation. And that is that he created males and females and every race equal. Period. And Paul is saying when you live by the law, you can't help but make distinctions and divisions and classify people. But the Holy Spirit controlling your life will change that. Because Jesus doesn't live that way. And the Holy Spirit is really just trying to shape us into the image and the mind of Jesus. It comes back to who we are and our identity. And so Paul gets to the end of this section and he says, here's who you are in Christ. You're a child of God. You're a child of God. You have an intimacy with God as his child that you can, say, you can cry out to him and say, Abba, Father. And I think we sometimes interpret Abba, Father as some, a, a childish thing. Something that uh, an infant might say as they're trying to say daddy. And, and there is, this word definitely is, is, is speaking to the intimacy we have with God. But, but not so much like a toddler to a parent. As an adult child to a parent. The kind of relationship that we have give and take. The kind of relationship where we respect each other and we love each other and we care for each other and, and we will do anything for each other and, and we have arguments with each other and we wrestle with things together. But there is a depth of intimacy from being a mature, in a mature relationship that you simply can't have when you're talking about a toddler and a parent. And God's goal for us as children, as his children, is not that we remain immature, but that we become mature in the faith in such a way that our relationship with him is built not on rules, but on trust and love. Do we need him continually? Is he still our father? Always. But it is a more intimate deeper relationship that God designed us to experience. Eventually, it all comes back to faith. 
I didn't count how many times Paul says, uses the word faith in this chapter. I'm going to guess at least a dozen. He talks about the faith of Abraham, which his point is, if you think the law is how you get your identity, then look at Abraham. Abraham was called the great man of faith, and he lived 430 years before the law even came into existence. It's always about faith. It's always been about faith. At the heart of Adam and Eve's relationship with God was faith. It was trust. And that's what it means to be a child of God. To live a life of, we are so engaged in the grace of God and what he's done for us in Christ, that our response is trust and faith. God sent his son so that we might be children of God through faith. And so the call of the gospel, the call of Christ is not do more, measure up, get your life together. The call of the gospel, the call of Christ is trust me. Have faith. Believe. Let me have your life. And we'll do amazing things together. Because you're a child of God. You're a child of God. I'm convinced if we could get into our our minds, into our hearts, and every part of our being, that we are children of God, not because of anything, not because we're good, but because God is. We would be different people, individually and collectively. And that's why we come to this table today. Because at this table, we hear the call of God through the grace of Christ. Christ has come. He has died for us. He has given his life for us so that we might know relationship with God. To be his children. That's God's dream for every single one of us. To know that we are loved children of God. My prayer is that we will see that and embrace that. Father, we want to thank you for your word to us today. Thank you for all that you've done for us in Christ and for the call to be your children. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will teach us and, and open our hearts and our minds to see the truth of who we are. Father, as we come to this table, we remember the night when Jesus met with his disciples. The night when he he took bread and he gave thanks to you and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Remember that the same night he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks to you. And he gave it to his disciples saying, drink from this all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Father, pour out your blessing on the bread and the cup. May they be food for our souls. May they be, may they be food that, that as we eat, we embrace the truth about who you are and about who we are. And we ask this through Jesus. Amen. As you were released by Rose this morning, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, and 
eat it and return to your seat by the outside aisles. If you'd like to stay and pray at the altar rail, it's always open. If coming to the front's difficult for you or you prefer, we have a tray of bread and cups. We're happy to serve you in your seat. Just let the usher know as your row is released. And I have gluten-free wafers here and cups. If you would like those, just let me know as you come forward. I always like to mention that we practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. It might be the first time that you've ever worshipped here. But if you come today with your heart open to God, with a desire to embrace this call of being God's children, we come and receive these gifts from our gracious and loving Heavenly Father. without hope no place to begin your love made a way to let mercy come in when death was arrested my life began
Arise, my soul, arise, shake off thy guilty fears, the bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands, before the throne my surety stands, my name is written on his hand. Please stand with us. of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.